Well, good morning, and uh, may I add my welcome to this uh, study day together, and thank you very much indeed for your warm welcome to me. It's a great joy to be here back at uh, uh, Trinity here in Dallas, and uh, to revisit you as a congregation and to meet folks from other congregations too, especially to be able to give our time to understanding the scriptures and particularly uh, the great challenge and the great uh, benefit of the book of Psalms. And as Bill has said, we're going to explore the section of the book that runs from 120 to 134. But in this section, this first session this morning, I want to do some introductory work on psalms and to take you to another psalm outside of that range uh, as by way of introduction. Then we have five more sessions, three today and two tomorrow. And we're going to divide the uh, Songs of Ascent 120 to 134, which is 15 psalms, into five groups of three and work with them that way. I think that's actually how they are composed. That's how they are collected together in the book, so I'm not straining it to do that. But it means that in this first session out of the six, I have opportunity to talk a bit more generally about psalms and about their value to us. And, of course, when you come to a big book like this, there is so much here that we could say we can only just uh, skate on the surface when I was a young man, I used to work with students in InterVarsity in the UK, and uh, we used to have a story there about a mythical preacher, I'm so sure, but it's a good story to get us started, who uh, went to speak to the uh, university at uh, York in England, the InterVarsity chapter at York. And he thought it would be rather a fun idea to uh, divide the four points of his talk by the four letters of Y-O-R-K. So uh, he began his first point starting with Y, and he was a rather lengthy preacher, and it took him about 15 minutes to do Y, another 15 minutes to do O, and by that time he was really uh, beginning to fly. So R took him 20, 25 minutes, and K was the pièce de résistance at the end, and uh, that was about 35 minutes worth. So these poor students staggered out from uh, the uh, experience of listening to this uh, preacher, and one said to the other, well, what did you think of that? And he said, well, I'm just glad we're not at the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology. <laughs> I feel a little bit like that with the Book of Psalms. How do you get uh, this huge thing into uh, um, an area that we can understand? But let's try and just set up some basic principles. Psalms has been called the hymn book of the Second Temple because it was collected after the exile. Remember the Jews were exiled, Judah was exiled to Babylon, and then after 70 years, in completion of his promise, God brought them back to the land of Israel. And the temple was rebuilt, and the nation was reconstituted, and the book of Psalms was collected from that whole period. One of the Psalms, for example, was written by Moses, right the way through to the post-exilic celebrations of the return from exile. So it the Psalms themselves occupy a large, large section of Israel's history, collected together as a pattern of corporate worship. And, of course, has been used as such ever since in the church all around the world. So the hymn book of the Second Temple is not a bad title, but I prefer the title The Prayer Book of Israel. Because uh, it's not just hymns, there are personal prayers, there are reflections on the nature and character of God. And uh, I think the prayer book of Israel is a good title for the Psalms and therefore the prayer book of the new Israel, the church, because as Eugene Peterson puts it in his little book, Working the Angles, we come to the Psalms 
to learn answering speech to God. God speaks to us in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in those first five books, all of the theological content of the Bible is potentially there. I say potentially because obviously it's expanded in the revelation of the Lord Jesus and of the gospel. But all the knowledge of God, the seedbed of everything else, is there in those first five books where God addresses his people in the Torah, which we usually translate as law, but I think a better translation is instruction. It is a father instructing his children as to how they are to live in his world. Now the prophets come and they apply the Torah to the specifics of life in their century, their context. But the Psalms are different as scripture. The Psalms reflect and articulate response to God in all the changing scenes of life. We're used to scripture being God addressing us. The Psalms are us addressing God, but because it's scripture, our address to God is inspired and authenticated, authorized, if you like, by God, so that we come to the Psalms to learn answering speech to God, to learn how to pray. Now, of course, that means that there'll be lots of different types of Psalms, praise Psalms, thanksgiving Psalms what are technically called lament psalms. They are requests, intercessory prayers, testimony psalms. And they are all inspired, answering speech to God, authorized by God himself. Now that makes them an enormous treasure trove, doesn't it? You see, they are a reliable source of instruction as to how we should address God. So there'll be expressions of joy and fear and anger and sorrow. And when those emotions are uppermost in our lives, that's why we go to the book of Psalms, because the whole gamut of human emotion is caught up in our response to God in the words of the psalmists. It's also a way of ordering our thoughts about God and about his greatness, what he has done for us, the wonder of knowing him. So that the Psalms provide a, a window to the soul and a script for the lips. They open up our own hearts to God and they give us ways in which we can address God, speak with him, sometimes from the depths of despair, sometimes from the heights of elation. And of course they were written as poetry. Now poetry is designed to express and engage the emotions when I first left university, I um, was an English school teacher in a high school, and uh, I tried to get uh, teenage boys interested in poetry. It's quite an interesting challenge, that, really. We had an anthology of modern poetry that we used in our school, and I still remember one of the classic poems that, if ever anything put off a boy from poetry, it was this. The poem said, Life is red, I am orange. That was the poem. <laughs> and uh, you were meant to think into that poem that you could never perhaps quite get the redness that you wanted in life. I guess that's what the poet was saying. Well, people have dreadful memories of poetry at school, but these psalms engage the emotions. They engage the affections. They, they touch the heart in a way that prose usually does not. 
Now, in English poetry, at least for many centuries, we express that by rhythm and by rhyme. Hebrew poetry is strong on rhythm, but it doesn't have rhyme. That's a good thing, really, for us translating it. The way Hebrew poetry works is by parallelism, by each verse in our Bible text in English having two sections, the one balancing up the other, and we'll see that working as we get into these Psalms. But let me just take you to one example of Hebrew poetry that's not in the book of Psalms. If you turn uh, a little bit to the right of Psalms, going through the Bible to Isaiah, I must say Isaiah and not Isaiah, Uh, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, which you'll find on page 703 of the NIV Bible, you'll see that this prophecy is set out in poetic form, and the second part of the prophecy in 7b is uh, a very typical piece of Hebrew poetry. I've chosen this just so that we can get the feel of it. Let's read verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now, if you put that into Hebrew, it goes like this. And he looked for mishpat, but saw mishpach. He looked for sadaka, but heard sa'aka. Now, you see how the, the, the words are almost the same in sound. It's like a sort of pun, really, in English. And these words that are almost the same in sound are actually totally different in meaning. So, when you hear something like, he looked for mishpat, but saw mishpach, you see that, uh, on the one hand, God is looking for righteousness, but it sounds so similar, but it's actually the opposite. He finds instead bloodshed, violence. Now, often Hebrew poetry works like that. That's very difficult. In fact, it's impossible to get in English when you translate it. But a good commentary will help you to pick up those things, and that's why a good commentary is a really uh, useful um, aid to our understanding of something in another language where the style of the language has a big impact on the content. Now, the point is that poetry is designed to be striking. It's designed to be something that makes you stop and think, but it's also designed to be something that's easily memorized. I guess all of us, and the older we are, the more it's the case, remember the rhymes we learnt in our childhood, Christian rhymes and other rhymes, very easily, very effortlessly. 30 days hath September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31, excepting, you know. And we learnt that when we were kids, and it's there in our memory bank forever, really. And probably when I can't remember who I am, I'll still remember that 30 days has September. So, we mustn't uh, be surprised that God puts things into poetic form so that we can remember it more easily. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, there's a rhythm to it. Even in English, there's a poetic shape to it. It gets into the memory and it fixes itself there. So we mustn't put the Psalms through a sort of systematic theological mincing machine and uh, lay out their meaning in an objectivized way. We're meant to feel what they say, to engage our hearts as well as our minds in the whole experience of what the Psalms are saying. Now, lastly, by way of introduction, let me make two other preliminary comments about interpreting the Psalms in the 21st century. 
They're easy comments to remember. The first comment is that nothing has changed, and the second comment is that everything has changed. Now, let me try and explain that. Firstly, nothing has changed. That is to say, God is still God, the same now as then, and so everything that he reveals about himself is still 100% true. You know, I'm sure that the key to every passage of the Bible is to ask, what is God teaching us about God here? That is the first question we should always ask, because the Bible is a book about God before it is a book about us. It's going to say a lot of helpful things to us, but it wasn't written about us. It was written about God. And if every Bible study group would remember that, we get a lot further in our Bible study. What is God teaching us about God here? Now, God has not changed. He is the unchanging God. Human nature hasn't changed. Neither has the rebellion of the human heart. So there is no ugly ditch. There is no yawning gap between the world of the psalmist and the 21st century. There is no huge jump that you have to make between Jerusalem and Dallas. Nothing has changed in terms of God and man God's revelation and God's purposes. But everything has changed because Jesus Christ has come. And we read the Psalms through the lens of the coming, the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He is the center of all the scriptures. And so the Psalms supremely speak of him as the man of God, the son of God, living in the midst of a godless world, suffering, dying, rising, reigning. And we will see Christ in the Psalms, and we will see the Psalms through Christ, because everything has changed, because Jesus has come. So as Martin Luther said, we read the Bible forwards, but we can only understand the Bible backwards. We read it forwards chronologically, but we look back through the event of Christ to the Old Testament, and you cannot get to the Old Testament from the 21st century without going through Christ. He is there as the great change. The cross dominates history. So as we look at the Psalms, we read them through Christ, and we see Christ in them. And with his coming, there have been tectonic plate shifts in the way in which the world operates. Old Testament Israel has been fulfilled in the New Testament church. The physical land blessings are fulfilled in the spiritual blessings, which are ours in Christ Jesus. So it's not fanciful at all to take the Psalms and apply them to ourselves, to our church, to our generation. In fact, the New Testament does that. Uh, it quotes Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3, and at Hebrews 3, 7, the writer says, so as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, you could equally translate it, so as the Holy Spirit is saying, and then he quotes Psalm 95, written centuries before. Why? Because the word of God is the now word. See, I meet lots of people who say, what is God saying today? I wish we had a now word from God. My friends, we've got 66 books of now word from God. What God said he is saying. He hasn't gone back on any of it. It's still a living and enduring word of God. That's why you can come to the Psalms and know that this is what the Holy Spirit is saying today. So we mustn't read them as our Jewish neighbors might without reference to Christ. He is the key to all the scriptures. And we shall find him here in the Psalms 
just as clearly as anywhere else in the Bible. Well now with that by way of introduction turn with me please to Psalm 19 and we're going to just have a little look at that psalm as a a way into the songs of ascent and to the whole Psalter. Psalm 19 was described by C.S. Lewis as the greatest psalm, the greatest poem rather, in the Psalter. The greatest poem in the Psalter. I had the privilege of being a student of English literature at Cambridge when he was the professor and sitting at his lectures and hearing him teach. Uh, He was um, an amazing man, an amazing teacher. I, as a freshman at university, sat at his feet and knew that I was sitting at the feet of greatness. I didn't always know quite what greatness was saying, but (laughs) I knew that it was greatness. But what a privilege it was uh, to hear him. And having seen Prince Caspian last night, I was reminded of that uh, amazing work that, uh, that he did, both Christianly and, of course, as a critical scholar. So if Lewis says this is the greatest poem in the Psalter, I prick up my ears. He says it's brilliant in its structure, and that is certainly true. It's beautiful in its imagery, and it is powerful and essential in its content. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is a wonderful poem, even in an English translation, you get something of its majesty. But I think its greatest value is that it answers the greatest question of our human existence. And the greatest question I would suggest to you is, how can a man or woman come to know God? How can we come to know God? The answer, of course, is that we are entirely dependent on revelation, on God making himself known to us. Let me help us to see this by way of two illustrations. How shall we come to know one another? You may know everybody in the room, but I know hardly anybody. How do we come to know one another? Well, by the words we speak and by our actions. We say things and we do things that reveal our character and our individuality. 
We speak to reveal what is going on in our minds and hearts. But of course we decide what we will say and how much we will say at any moment. We, in a sense, are in control of our self-disclosure. We've all had experiences of trying to get, no, to, get to know people uh, only to be met by a, a polite but uh, very clear brick wall. You know, monosyllables, giving nothing away. Human beings, then, can only be known when they choose to reveal themselves. They do that in their words. They do that in their actions. Sometimes very intentionally, planning the decor of your house so that it reflects your taste, painting a picture, writing a novel, planting a garden, singing a song. But ultimately, it does require words. Now, ratchet that up a notch or two. If we need words to get to know one another, let me ask you a question that, is, as a Brit, has from time to time uh, occupied my mind. How might I get to know Queen Elizabeth? Now, that dimension of self-disclosure is even more vitally important when I ratchet it up to that level. I mean, I could try to get to know our Queen. Um, I could um, send her letters and messages. I could uh, send her gifts. I could phone the palace and I'd get the fourth flunky on the left and no further than him. I could turn up at the gate with a little sign when she drives out in her limousine saying, I am David, I would like to get to know you. And the special branch will soon have me on their list and they will make quite sure that I can't get anywhere near her because she is the queen and I am a subject, I'm a citizen. Well, it's not quite the same in an independent republic like this, but I guess it's not easy to have access to the president. So it's not only the usual self-determination, but because of her position, she is not accessible to me. I can only get to know the Queen if the Queen wants to get to know me, and for some unaccountable reason, she doesn't seem to have yet got that on the agenda. <laughs> so she has to condescend to reveal herself to me. Now, if that is true of an earthly monarch, how much more would it be true of the only living God, the King of Kings. We will never be able to climb up to God by our own unaided intellect, because if we could, the God that we arrived at would, by that process, be something smaller than our minds and so totally unworthy of the title God. See, that is the nonsense when people say, I like to think that God is like this. Well, you might like to think about it like that. But that doesn't mean he is. The only way you can know God is not by you liking to think that he might be like this. It's by God revealing himself to us. And this God, whom we could never know unless he disclosed himself to us, is not just a projection of our own imagination. We are dependent on his actions and his words to reveal himself, his character. And that is just what he's doing in this psalm. The first six verses tell us that God is constantly revealing himself through the creation. The glory and the greatness are seen in the vastness of the heavens. They are immeasurable, they are beautiful, they are ordered, they reveal God's glory. Creation is witnessing constantly 
to the existence of God. And those opening verses that talk about no speech or language, that is no human language, where their voice is not heard. God speaks through what he has made, which reflects his character. And this is experienced everywhere in the world, to the ends of the earth, their words go out. God is communicating, not through an actual voice, but through what he has done, through his creation in the world all the time. The message is conveyed in glorious sunset, in the storm clouds, in a starry night, in a blazing sky like today with a blue sky and the glorious sunshine. In these ways, God is continually revealing himself as the creator and providing for life on planet Earth so that the sun is uh, every day running its course and all that that means in terms of light and life and sustenance is ours because God wills it to be so. Yes, God reveals himself in what he has done, what he has made. But we all know that that doesn't necessarily lead you to a personal knowledge of God. Two men can look at a beautiful sunset and one will say, isn't God magnificent? And the other will say, I wish I brought my camera. Because he doesn't see God in it at all. He just sees it as a, an amazing uh, collection of light and refraction of light and colors and so on. You see, the action of creation doesn't automatically lead you to God. Sometimes people say, there's a saying in England, you're nearer God's heart in a garden than anywhere else on earth. And that is true, but it doesn't take you into a knowledge of God. People usually say that to me when they're telling me why they haven't been to church on Sunday. You're nearer to God's heart in a garden. But um, it, doesn't t it doesn't give you personal knowledge. You need the words, don't you? Which is why verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And suddenly we move from what God does in activity in creating and sustaining the world, which is his common grace and does reveal his nature, to the specific revelation of scripture, which is why we're coming to study this book today. Because in the word of God, here, of course, the law, referring primarily to the Torah, the first five books, but then by extension to the whole commentary that the rest of the Bible is on that, in the Torah we find the perfection of God reviving the soul. The instruction of God that he gives to his people brings refreshment. Now, let me just uh, show you the parallelisms and the way they work. You see, if you look down from verse 7 through to verse 9, you'll see that there are two halves to each verse, which gives us six sections, and that in each section, the revelation of God in words is referred to in a different title. So you have law and statutes in verse 7, precepts and commands in verse 8, fear and ordinances in verse 9. And that gives us the whole spectrum of God's revelation in Scripture. Law is, as I've said, instruction. The second word there, statutes in verse 7, evoth, means God's personal testimony to his people about himself because the statutes of God, that is the commands that he gives, reveal the personal character of God. The law could not be different because God is God. And then the third thing in verse uh, 8, translated precepts, translates a, ver a word to, that means to engrave. So the idea of precepts is that they are eternal. 
that they are absolute. What God says, he says unchangeably. They're right for all time. They're engraved in the scriptures. So we've got the instruction of a father, the testimony of the character of the lawgiver, the unchanging nature of what he has said, and then the commands of the Lord are righteous. Well, this is the word mitzvah. You know how Jewish boys have at the age of 12, their bar mitzvah, they've come to adulthood. And the bar mitzvah is the time that you take on the commandments. His word contains his commandments, which are specific instructions for specific situations. They are, says the psalmist, pure, radiant, giving light to the eyes. Then there is the fear of the Lord, because the great purpose of Scripture is to bring us to bow in humble, reverent awe before God. And then lastly, there is the mishpat of the Lord, which we saw in Isaiah, and here is called the ordinances of the Lord. That is the judgments, the king settling matters. That's what it's all about, making decisions in all matters of dispute. And those decisions that God gives us in his word are sure and altogether righteous. Now, you see that comprehensive vocabulary, instruction, testimony, engraved uh, on the heart as well as on the tablets of stone, commandments, which lead us to awesome reverence and then to right judgments and to decisions that are sure and righteous. So it's no wonder that the psalmist says, this is more to be desired than much pure gold or than honey from the comb, because, verse 11, by them is your servant warned, instructed, kept on the right paths, and in keeping them there is great reward in this life and indeed in the life to come, because if we live according to the maker's instructions, our whole lives are going to focus much more effectively. But the other thing that runs through the parallels, and let's just track back on this before we... Um, conclude this session the other thing that runs through is what the bible does for us so in verses 7 8 and 9 you have what the bible is but then how it affects us you remember i said that the psalms are always about the affections about the response and so there is a a, a motivational statement of each of the statements of what the bible is is paralleled by a motivational statement of what the bible does back to verse 7 the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Reviving the soul. It refreshes. So that when we read God's word, we are reminded how great he is, how good he is. And our lives are lifted up. They're refreshed by a vision of God in his word. So that we lift our eyes beyond the things that occupy us so much of our lives. And we find our, our souls, that is the inner life, refreshed by God's word. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. What do they do? They make wise the simple. That is to say, they show us what is right and how to live that way. So they give us a sure path for life. Now, the simple here is a remark that is totally positive. It doesn't mean the simple in the sense of being educationally challenged or anything like that. The simple is something that you want to be in the Bible. You want to be uncluttered so that you can be made wise. Of course, you want to be simple in order to become wise, but you won't be wise unless you're simple, simple enough to say, God, be my teacher. All the time I think I know the way, I won't be listening to God. 
when I realize that I need to just humble myself before him and be simple, I can begin to hear his wisdom. That's what the Bible does. It refreshes. It makes us wise. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Well, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? When our lives are being refreshed and made wise, there's a joy about our lives. It helps us to live in contact with God because joy comes from knowing God, knowing his promises, knowing that he's with us. And joy is a deep confidence that this God is the same and will never let us down. Now, all this comes from studying the Bible. The soul is refreshed. The spirit is made wise, the heart is made joyful. And then the next one, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes, so it directs us. There are commands to obey. This is the way we ought to go. Here is the way in which it guides us. And then the fear of the Lord is pure. Enduring forever means that you never have to unlearn what you've learned in the Bible. It will always be true. And it will always guard your life. So as you learn it as a young person, you're investing for the whole of the rest of your life. You're never going to have to unlearn that. Other things you might have to as the society changes all around us all the time. But the fear of the Lord endures forever. And the ordinances of the Lord are righteous. And as we follow them, enable us to live in a righteous way. That's why it's more precious than gold. That's why it's sweeter than honey. Now, friends, we need all those ministries and helps in our lives, don't we? And the only place you will get it is in Scripture. That is where God speaks with clarity, with certainty, with definiteness. Lots of people imagine that God is saying lots of different things today. He may or he may not be. It's very difficult sometimes to know. The only way you could begin to know is by testing it against Scripture. And scripture in the 66 books is the authoritative, sufficient word of God for his people in every place at every time. So I want to give myself to the Bible because then I'm giving myself to God. It's not that I'm worshipping the Bible. Sometimes people say of conservative evangelicals that their trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. No, no, it's not that. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the Bible is the means by which I come to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the words by which God has authoritatively revealed himself to me. That's why we're giving ourselves to Scripture. And you see, it's not just that we need to do that for ourselves, but we need to do it for our churches, for our country, because here is the authoritative word of God for 2008 as much as for any other year of the Lord's grace. And I just want to say that if we don't do that, there is no plan B. The church will not be strong. The culture will not be impacted. The gospel will not go forward unless the word of God is in the driving seat. Because if the word of God is in the driving seat, God is in the driving seat. That is what he has revealed to us. And all the problems that the church faces across the world, it faces because it rejects the authority of the word of God. And where you see churches that are alive and growing, that is where the Bible is being preached. Sometimes uh, it may have specific emphases, particular, sometimes even distortions. But at least people are trying to find out what does scripture say? Because we know that 
that is an authority that is external to ourselves. All the other authorities in Christendom are internal. Reason, the traditions of the church, our experience, they're all human authorities. But scripture is the living and enduring word of God. And though we have to interpret it with our minds and receive it into our hearts, the authority comes from outside, not from inside. It is divine, not human. And that's why it's such a great thing to give ourselves to the study of God's word. So he says, I don't know my errors, but you do, Lord. Your word will reveal them. Isn't it interesting that just like the sun, it says in verse 6 that as the sun makes its circuit from one end of the heavens to the other, nothing is hidden from its heat. So as the light of God's word shines out into the world every day, nothing is hidden from its illumination. Forgive my hidden faults because it's the Bible that will show me what my errors are and it's the Bible that will keep me from willful sins do you remember how when John Wesley went I think to Oxford University as a young man his mother gave him a Bible before he left home and she inscribed in the flyleaf of the Bible this sentence sin will keep you from this book but this book will keep you from sin that, you see, is what it's all about, isn't it? That's why I can pray, keep your servant from willful sins. If I am listening to God in his word, then they will not rule over me. Because as I hear his word and his spirit enables me to keep that word, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So he ends with that wonderful prayer that we often use. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. That's to say, Lord, I want to respond to you from a heart that's full of love and from lips that speak the authorized speech that you've taught me through the book of Psalms. You're my rock. You're my redeemer. I want to respond to you with everything I have. I want to be someone who is living in the light of your revelation, your actions and your words and responding to it out of glad obedience and with increasing praise and thanksgiving let's pray